Anonymous Eskimo, Episode 90. Mareichtuden, Mareichtuden. What's up? Welcome to the Anonymous Eskimo Podcast, where my guests share their stories about mental health, sobriety, recovery, and hope for people still struggling with mental health issues, alcohol, and drug addiction. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please visit my website at anonymouseskimo.com and click on the donate button. There, you have three different options to donate. First, you can donate directly through PayPal. Second, you can make a one-time donation through Buy Me a Coffee. And third, you can become a Patreon subscriber. You can also support the podcast by clicking on the store button, where you can get anonymous Eskimo merch. And while you're visiting my website, please take some time to rate this podcast and write a review. Recording from Denina Land, I'm your host, Ralph Sara. <laughs> On this episode, I have Eric Hawk. Eric is from Wasilla, Alaska. He is a guitarist for the Grammy Award-winning band Portugal The Man. Eric has been sober for two years. And on this episode, Eric courageously shares his story for those still struggling. So guys, please help me welcome Eric Hawk. Eric, I really thank you for being on the podcast. How are you? Dude, I'm doing great. I am. I'm back after a pretty wild week. We did AFN and then we went straight to Florida, uh, Alaska to Florida and back. That's, oh. a, that's a journey. That's how you route a tour. So yeah, I'm, I'm just <laughs> trying. My body's trying to figure out what time it is, but I'm happy to be home eating soup, chilling out, hanging with my dogs. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's chilly out there here in Anchorage. <laughs> I'm a little yeah. chilled. It's that Dude, time. We, I got to say, we bounced right before it looks like it kind of hit. You know, we, uh, it, my, my wife, my wife is, uh, every time I bring her up there, she's like, oh man, I, I think we should just like, maybe we should just move here. And I'm like, you've never done a winter. You've never done a winter here. <laughs> uh, and you know, being up for the week, we like, we went from fall to winter, basically. You kind of had to still drive to winter last week, but you know, we we went up the Glen Highway until until our rental car just couldn't kind of handle it anymore and turn back around. But yeah, how uh, how's the snow looking? How's the temps looking? Oh, it's uh, let's see, it, the snows um, it snowed and then it like stopped. So there's a little, I guess. Dusting of snow. <laughs> All right. So All right. yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty chilly. I don't know what the exact temp is. Twenty seven degrees or something like that. But yeah, that sounds. Yeah, that's not real winter yet. That's like charming winter. Yeah. I'm talking about like real winter. She hasn't experienced that yet. So exactly. someday she will. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Eric, can you go ahead and introduce yourself so our listeners can get to know you? I most certainly can. Uh, my name is Eric Hawk. I play in a band called Portugal the Man uh, from uh, a long family of Alaskans, and I'm sitting here in Tacoma, Washington, happy to be on the Anonymous Eskimo podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Washington. Are are the rest of the guys in Portland? They're in Portland, yeah. I'm kind of... I, I, I lived in Seattle. I, I moved straight from Alaska to Seattle in 1999, and, and uh, this city has just really... Uh, well, Seattle specifically has really shown uh, 
shown kindness to me and it's it's kind of helped me go from you know a kid with a dream to kind of establishing roots so i just i love seattle so much i just moved from seattle to tacoma that was about as far as i could manage to get away from it um but it feels like a real move i'm like i'm in a different city where i'm kind of like you know learning learning the streets and learning the ropes and figuring out what restaurants I like and stuff. But Tacoma's amazing. It it honestly feels like Seattle did about, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And uh it's just like forty five minutes closer to Portland, which I have to go to like pretty much weekly. Um, you know, with all the band being based out of there and all of our kind of production operations and rehearsals and stuff happening. I just drive that Seattle to Portland drive, you know, weekly pretty much, if not more. Uh, so cutting 45 minutes off it was, you know, that felt like a big deal to me. I'm like, ah, I'm practically there. I yeah, still a lot of time behind the wheel, but I love Tacoma. I'm just, I'm, I'm obsessed with this place. Nice. Nice. Are you driving the Impala down? (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I, uh, yeah, we've had, we've had a crazy run of car luck. Um, you know, I was down, usually I drive like a little 1980 Celica, a little 42 year old Toyota Celica. (laughs) Um, and I drove that down for some rehearsals last month and it got stolen out of a hotel parking lot, uh, which was wild. So there's just this saga to like get it back. I kept getting sightings of it on the internet. People were sending me messages and the cops were like, no help. Um, oh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, most, mostly I'm either in that or we just got an old truck. I'm in an 86 F 150 and that feels kind of more appropriate for burning up highway miles. I'm just like wearing a cowboy hat, <laughs> driving, driving through red counties and, you know, just, uh, <laughs> Yeah, living, living the dream. Yeah, I was at a a Halloween party yesterday, and uh, Nick Carpenter was there, and I told him, "Hey, I'm I'm uh, interviewing Eric tomorrow," and and then your your car. Your car stuff came up. <laughs> did it. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, dude. I had I had Nick in my house just a couple of weeks ago. It was uh it was it was so good. I, I want that dude to take over the world. I want medium build to be, you know, on the tips of everyone's tongue. I think that guy writes incredible music. He's got one of the best singing voices in the world. Man, I love that guy. Yeah. He did some there was like karaoke, so he did he did a song, I forget which one. And uh, Matt uh, Fabian was there as well, and he did a song. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I sang a song, and, you know, it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun. Dude, that's some heavy-hitting karaoke ringers right there. <laughs> you guys could roll in anywhere, <laughs> any karaoke bar anywhere in the world, and just crush it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, so, let's see. So, you... Got sober. When did you get sober? I just I just hit two years. Um, I got sober on October tenth, twenty twenty. Ten ten twenty twenty. I'm a I'm a sucker for numbers. So uh, how could I resist, right? Oh my gosh. Um, ten ten twenty twenty. Yeah, and I was I was lucky enough, man. I COVID was like the lockdown was hard for me, and uh, you know, little little bit deeper background. Um, I'm a paraplegic, so uh, basically I'm I'm paralyzed from the chest down, um, and it's all good. I tour around, I travel, like I stay pretty healthy. I'm active and everything, but from the minute I got hurt, I had doctors kind of being in my ear, being like, you know, watch out for pulmonary diseases. Like a pulmonary disease is what's going to get you. Watch out for pneumonia, bronchitis. Uh, just stay away from all that stuff. So then when the world got locked down by basically a pulmonary virus, like I kind of spun out, I was kind of losing it. So we took it super seriously. Um, the wife and I, you know, we were like washing our mail, you know, it was just bleach everywhere, isopropyl alcohol everywhere. And we didn't dare leave the house or talk to anybody. Um, and I had just come off of, you know, pretty much four years of high level successful touring with, with feel it still and with Woodstock and with the success that our band had had. Um, I was just used to this like very frenetic pace of, you know, just high level tour and travel and everything. And that all went away. And uh, yeah, I just kind of kept 
trying to live like a rock star when I couldn't leave my kitchen. Mm. So it was, uh, you know, it, it was just like that. That's kind of how I was conditioned to like get through my days at that point. Like, how do you fall asleep in a tour bus every single night? How do you fall asleep on, you know, airport benches or, you know, just all that stuff. And it was for me, it was always just like slamming whiskey until I fell on my face. And I just kept trying to do that. You know, when I'm in my lovely home with my dogs and my bride to be, I was still, you know, living like I was bouncing around in the back of a tour bus. Man. And, and when you decided to get um, help and go into treatment, you wanted somewhere where there was wheelchair accessibility, but you kept striking out. And yeah, you, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think you that know, now in, in this day and time that you'd that you'd be easily be able to find something like that, but for you it was yeah. hard? Yeah, that you know, of all the things that I did that was kind of one of the last considerations. I was like, you know, I just I gotta get myself right. Um and I, I had been kicking around the idea of a treatment center for a while. Like I was always pretty high functioning. I never I could never black out, man. I, I never, I could never get myself to a point where I was like disconnected. I always kind of felt like I had a front row seat to this whole thing. So like even, you know, just like waking up and drinking, waking up and snorting and drinking and popping pills, but mostly just like drink, 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 drinking. Um, I still had like this kind of level of cognizance and I would talk about like, you know, I'd go through a couple days here and there where I'd like put it down. Um, but I just like, I had that vibration coming on. I had the shakes and I was terrified that it was going to turn to seizures. And I was terrified that those were going to turn to DTs, but I had like, you know, I had the bugs crawling on me and I had all that stuff. So it was terrifying for me. Um, so I knew that I needed some kind of medical help at that point like you know i could make it like two or three days without a bottle and then like on that third day just you know this vibrating hell would break mm -hmm. out in my brain um so yeah it was i mean my considerations were is it close is it quick is it cheap you know at no point was i like can i get into the building but then when the reality of it kind of set in and it was like, all right, it's definitely time to do this thing. I just started looking at, you know, the places that uh, some of my musician buddies had gone in the past and uh, they were all like cliffside Malibu kind of places oh. like, you know, places <laughs> yeah. that could make like in a lot of places that could like make it work, quote unquote. But like I wouldn't have access to any of the grounds or any of the reasons that you would go to a place like that. Mm. Um, they're like, yeah, we'll get you in and we'll get you a room. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to be able to enjoy the the cliffside courtyard or the overlook or the, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. So it, was, it, it really was more it sounded more like, you know a quarantine than mm. anything else, which at that point in 2020, I'm like, that's the last thing I want. But, uh, yeah, man, eventually I did find a place that was close. Um, that was, you know, 20 miles from my house and kind of surrounded a lake and they weren't perfect, but you know, it was like an old, uh, it was an old retirement home hospital, basically like an old kind of like the pioneer home in Anchorage, you know, one of those sort of community houses, mm. Um, so it was built before the ADA, but they're like, yeah, we can give you uh we'll make sure that you get in a bigger room, you know, and like, there's a couple places that might be tough for you to get around, but we'll make it work. And they did. And I did. And it wasn't perfect, but we got it. Man, that, that point where you just decided to go, was that difficult? No, <laughs> you know, that it, it probably should have been. Um, and you know, as as much as my pride can look back and paint a picture like, oh, I knew, you know, that the other shoe was going to have to drop and I was going to have to to do this and that I was all rational about it. I was like I, I was kind of trying to be high functioning. I was trying to to white knuckle a lot of this stuff. Um, the thing that finally got me is like we started tiptoeing back into work like the band kind of started doing some stuff again and uh by that point, you know, I had been put on ice in my house for like 
eight months where I was just like left up to my own devices and I had gained a ton of weight. My skin looked like garbage and my health was just kind of falling apart. And, uh, you know, I, I still like, I could show up and do a thing. I could, I could like show up for a day and do my job. But we did this thing where we, uh, we booked out this theater in Portland for the week, uh, beautiful theater in downtown Portland. And we were going to bring out a film crew and, you know, shoot a, shoot a remote concert. And we were just going to like, kind of use it as like a band camp thing. It was going to be like back to work in a way that we could do it safely and responsibly. So I showed up for the first day and like saw a lot of my crew guys for the first time, like, you know, guitar tech and, uh, front of house and our monitor engineer and everything. And it was so good to see everybody and kind of fist bumped and, you know, hugged and got my guitars all tuned up and did a sound check and got ready to roll. And then I went back to the hotel that night and I just got hammered. I, I drained my mini bar. I called down to the hotel desk. I was like, Hey, refill my mini bar. They did it again. I drained it again. And then I went out to the bars and then, you know, I just got like clobbered and came back to my room about three in the morning, passed out face down and didn't wake up and mm. didn't wake up to, you know, dozens of calls and people knocking on the door and people being like, dude, where the fuck is he? Uh, just nothing. And, you know, the band called the hotel the hotel called my wife my wife called my mom my mom called our manager the manager called me again and nobody was getting through um you know eventually like i think that evening i finally came to and just had a billion concerned freaking out messages of like are you dead are you dead are you dead um and you know i i had come to after like 15 hours of sleeping it off i felt great i'm like what are you, what are you guys talking about man it's fine like we weren't even gonna really do anything today it's like no we we were gonna record like the cameras were ready everything was ready you weren't and then they got to deal with this whole you know just where is he just the confusion of it so i scared a lot of people that day mm. uh, i i i think if that day hadn't happened you know i might have kept trying to you know, just get by with this sort of bare minimum, high functioning alcoholism kind of bullshit. But I kind of, I thank God for that day where I finally got to show people I wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. That's some, sometimes that's the hardest, but the easiest, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it's like the same thing, but that's sometimes people need that, you know, that, yeah. that, that kick in the ass, you know. Or just, yeah, I, there is kind of some relief to showing people that you actually are a train wreck, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, I, the, you know, I learned a lot on that day in that week. Like I learned that a lot of people loved me and that a lot of people also knew, because I think that was always, you know, the back of oh, my yeah. head, like, oh, I got this in the bag and like, you know, yeah, I got my problems, but no one's any the wiser. But when I didn't show up, everybody immediately jumped to the conclusion of like, oh, he, he drank himself to death mm. or like he's he's in a gutter somewhere or he's in like, you know, like my bass player uh, checked the the jails and the hospitals first, oh. which said which says a lot about like yeah. how how they thought my life was going. You know, it's like yeah. you, you're sitting there thinking like, oh, I, you know, I'm. I'm like cosmopolitan and like I, I sip a little bourbon before bed and then like, you know, it's this classy life and everyone's like, oh, no, he's drinking like a psycho and he's probably, you know, either committed a crime or killed somebody or killed himself. Uh, so that's yeah. a that's a good dose of reality. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now, you said um, previously you said addicts or people with chemical dependency are really good at making justifications and excuses. And it's not good to provide an excuse like lack of access to people seeking treatment. You know, it's yeah. sad, but uh, seeking treatment in general is extremely difficult. You have to like navigate through all these hoops, you know, appointments mm -hmm. for assessments and physicals, mental health appointments, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, not to mention the cost of treatment, man. 
you know, there's such a small window when someone decides to get help. And if organizations or facilities are just like throwing all these hoops and hurdles at you, it's easy for someone who's struggling to say, fuck it, you know, it's too hard. It's too hard to get sober, you know. How do you think we can make that easier? You know, I don't. I don't think it really needs to be easy. I I, I wish that it would be uh, more attainable. I guess, and you know, I, I I think the fact that these places are so expensive and there's such a, a limited, you know, amount of of resources for financial assistance um, when it comes to this stuff is is sad. I wish mm-hmm. I wish there was kind of a golden ticket or an easier answer. I was I was fortunate enough um, that I could you know go in part with Music Cares, um, just as a musician. Uh, they were you know I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have you know anything uh, put in place as a net for this. But Music Cares is rad for musicians. Um, basically just had to be like, Hey, I've put out some albums. I'm active in this industry and I'm in trouble. And, you know, a couple of conversations, a couple of people met, a couple of things signed. And, uh, they not only kind of helped, helped me find the place in Washington state, but they, they really helped me out financially with this stuff too. So kudos and props to them. But I, I also understand that that's, you know, privilege that I found something that, you know, it's just like, industry based and you know, I was like oh you're a musician come on over like we got you I know that's like not the case for everybody um and I wish it was easier um but for the access thing man it's like for the for like the the disability access um everyone I talked to was willing to like listen to my concerns and everyone was down to try and make it work. Um, but it's like, if you're in a wheelchair for any length of time, you're going to run into, uh, you're going to run into this, this paradox, which is people want to help you out. Um, but it's kind of left up to your level of comfort, you know, uh, how far that you want to get into a place that might be uncomfortable for you. It's like an example of, you know, back in the day, like it happens all the time in touring. But even, you know, when I was just kind of fresh out of the hospital, people would be like, hey, you want to go see a show in a basement? I'm like, well, I don't know if I can get down to the basement. They're like, oh, no, it's cool. We'll carry you down. We'll carry you down the stairs. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible. But like once I'm down there, is there a bathroom I can use? How am I getting back up? We're going to go to a show and everyone's going to get drunk and then they're going to carry me upstairs. You know, so there was an extension of that with uh, with the hospitals being like, yeah, sure, sure. We'll make it work. Um, when you cross that threshold of the unknowns, uh, it can be kind of scary. Um, you know, I think I was I'm lucky enough that I've been touring for years in places where uh, the the access isn't just like a compulsory thing. Like I've done tours in Eastern Europe and you know, I've toured you know, former Soviet states and South America and in places where, uh, you know, there's no ADA put in place. There's just like, yeah, we're going to make it work or you're going to make it work or you guys are going to make it work. So, um, you know, I just, I asked for a lot of pictures of the place that I went to, um, and got them and kind of eyeballed them. And I brought some ramps. I brought a toilet seat. I brought like some adaptive equipment and stuff. And, I was like, I think I can do this. I think I got this. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I, I would have done it anywhere that, you know, said that they had my back. Um, mm. I would have I gone to one of those, those kind of cliffside places if they were like, you know, we're going to lock you in a box for 30 days, but we're going to take care of you. And by the end of it, you're going to be able to go back into the world and you'll be right. You know, mm-hmm. that, that would, that would have done it. Um, so yeah, would have done it anywhere. Yeah. I'm glad, glad I got to do it, um, at a place that was already, you know, pretty much ready to go. And then the the other 10%, I kind of was able to figure out just knowing what I needed. 
Yeah, I had to, I tried to, um, this was my third time, my third residential treatment. I didn't, of course, I didn't have the money. I didn't have insurance. So I applied for Medicaid or Medicaid, Medicaid. Uh-huh. And I was denied and I was like freaking out, you know, cause I need, I needed this. Right. So I went to the Medicaid place at the, or the person that, that deals with Medicaid at the native hospital. And I was like trying to, you know, pleading and, and explaining why I need the Medicaid so I could go into treatment, you know, and, and they got in touch with them and, and, and luckily they reopened the case and I was granted Medicaid. So I was able to wow. go to treatment, but yeah, it took me a, took me a lot of hoops to jump through to get into my last treatment. Man. I, it's it's so hard, right? Uh, yeah. I just it, it, there's so many points in in that process of like, and by the way, it was like a really quick thing that night that I was telling you about, where I didn't show up for work. I think was like on October sixth, and by October tenth, I was in. Um, so they're like, we got to get you in quick, and a lot of that was music cares, and you know, just like my own pressure of that I put on myself of being like, all right, it's time to go. But it, it was able to come together quickly for me, but I know so often that's not the case. Like you'll, you'll, you'll hear stories of people getting to that moment or hitting a rock bottom or, you know, something really happens. And like, they do have that moment where it's like, okay, I do think I need help. And then they turn to their insurance or they turn to a facility or whatever. It's like, well, we can get you in, in three months or six months or, you know, like whatever it is, or we can probably get you approved for that next calendar year. You hear horror stories all the time. And it's, it's so hard because like when people need it, they need it then and there. Mm -hmm. So much of this stuff is time sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and even the treatment center where I went, there was, you know, there was beds open, but still there's waiting lists. (laughs) I was like, but there's beds open, you know, I didn't, quite get that process but it's unfortunate yeah. i guess but if you want really really want it you're gonna like i did i you're gonna you're gonna do whatever yeah i mean so much so much touring like i've, I've crashed on so many floors and in so many hallways and on so many benches i'm like i don't need a bed man it's cool <laughs> <laughs> i got i got a sleeping bag and a pad just like wherever i can fit but, yeah yeah hey. You you yeah. said that your your substance issue is a genetic issue. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put it all on anything, really. I, I ultimately I did what I did because, um, you know, I'm a selfish rock star that had a lot of access and carte blanche access to whatever he wanted for a long time. Um, I think more to the point, like. You know, my my dad drank himself to death. His dad drank himself to death. So there's, you know, there's not nothing there. And when I did kind of have those moments of like, all right, this is getting out of control. It's when I noticed that my hand was shaking exactly like I used to see my grandpa's handshake when I was a kid, mm-hmm. you know. And to me, uh, you know, that was already a dude when I was a kid that was, you know, well into his late fifties, early sixties. So for me to be getting that stuff in my late thirties, early forties terrified me. I'm like, Oh God, like not only am I doing exactly what they did, but like I'm fast tracked. I'm like advanced. And, uh, this thing's going to get me quicker than any of those other guys. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's there. Like, you know, I, I knew, um, from an early age that, uh, you know, it was likely that if I did start drinking, I would have at the very least a particularly challenging relationship with the stuff. Um, you know, no one was calling me an alcoholic out of the gate or anything, but you know, like, yeah, you know, probably not super set up for success with this whole thing. Um, but I still drank, you know, and like probably in spite of that idea. Um, it's like, I'm not my dad. I'm not his oh, dad. Yeah. I'm I'm my own person and I'm tougher than this and stronger than all this. And like, not only am I going to drink, I'm going to be like a internationally touring rock star who like actually has success 
and I'm going to drink harder than any of them did. And I'm not, it's not going to get me, uh, you know, and uh, that worked, that worked for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it was a while until that caught up with me. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there was a pride. I think there, there is like a weird, uh, a weird thing that happens with a lot of, a lot of folks that are just kind of hardwired for substance abuse or alcoholism where it's like, well, I'm a heavyweight, you know? Like I'm a heavyweight, I can handle it. It's like, yeah, I think most alcoholics would also consider themselves to be heavyweights at different points. Yeah. Like it's rare, it's rare uh, to hear stories in the in the recovery rooms or in AA or anything of people being like, "Well, I would just have a glass of wine and absolutely, you know, be a blubbery mess." Like hell no. <laughs> it's <laughs> like I would drink a bottle of wine and then drive to the store yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like on the way yeah i hit a light pole so what that light pole shouldn't have been in that intersection <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, i totally agree with the genetic thing by the way because you know it's it's in my family and you know it's scary to think my kids are more likely or it's in them you know, that they could yeah. maybe go that way, you know, because it's in both parents. But um, I think with in my case, they've seen me, you know, unfortunately, how how I was and how I how I used to be, that they can understand that maybe that's not the a thing that they want, you know. And of course, they have an yeah. awesome mother, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but I totally agree. I I totally agree with that. You know, um, yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to totally pull the lace over their eyes and you know be like this isn't a thing because it's not around. It's like I. It's hard to think about that um, in terms of you know how do you how do you not make the same mistakes that our parents made. My dad. I don't really remember my dad like getting drunk around me a lot. I know he did like in talking to my mom, uh, I know it was around, but like, I, I do think that he was kind of respectful and like, he didn't, you know, I, I don't think anybody wants their kid to inherit anything mm -hmm. perceived as, you know, uh, less than better than what they are. Like we all want better for our kids than what we had for, for us. And I wish I could talk to my dad about that stuff. Um, because, you know, I, I, he was a smart, compassionate dude who I'm sure uh, would be proud of the fact that I, I went through, you know, a recovery process, but also mortified that I pushed myself to the point where I needed to do it at all. Mm -hmm. um, he went to treatment when I was young. He went to Charter North in Alaska and uh, in Anchorage there and, um, you know learned a lot about himself but it was also he wanted to get right back to work and i think they they did one of those you know five-day specials oh. on him and you know they're like well you're bipolar but here's some lithium and try not to drink anymore and you're probably going to be okay and then he went oh, back into the so. world and didn't do any of the work and it got him you know but mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, like you don't want to, you don't want to put it all on that. And I'm definitely, you know, I'm having these, these, these sort of thought experiments more and more like the wife and I are trying for a kid. And I do think about that stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you don't want to make it not a big deal. Maybe you don't want to like make it a forbidden fruit either. You know, it's, yeah, it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to find that line. And, you know, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna trust that when the time comes where we are having a conversation about that stuff, like I can, I can use my experiences and hopefully I'll, I'll still be in a good spot with it then, you know, and I'll mm -hmm. just keep doing the work and I'll try and be ready for it when the time comes. Yeah. There's a thing in the recovery community where, um, and, and I've done this myself where, we we drink and we 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 fuck up our lives by drinking so much that you think, oh, all I have to do is move and I could start all over. You know, they call yeah. it a geographical. And you, being a touring musician, you basically had 
like yeah. a geographical every night or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, how did you handle that? Because Dude, everybody to- in their totally. recovery world knows, you know, geographicals never work. Well, to- I mean, absolutely. And I think, uh, I, I think that's why I was drinking at such a heavy rate and it didn't catch up for me for so long is because I was like, I, I drank until I puke and then at 3am I'd get on the bus and wake up in another city. Um, and there's also like, you're, it's rare that when you're traveling around with like a pack of seasoned drinkers, um, where it's like every night the writers like, all right, here's four bottles of whiskey, four bottles of tequila, a couple hundred beers, bunch of nice wine, uh-huh. have at it. And it's and it's gone by the end of the night every single night. Uh, a lot of that is, you know, you got friends all over the place and you have like your Cleveland boys who haven't seen you since the last time you were in Cleveland six months ago and they want to party and they want to go for it. Um, so you're like, all right, open bar for me and all of my friends. And... I was never, ever the drunkest guy in the room because you got buddies that are like, ah, the band's in town. Let's party with them. And by 9 a.m., they're the ones that are puking in the bathroom. Um, (laughs) So there's like this sort of sense of, you know, uh, I don't know, like a a weird self-righteous kind of worst case scenario model that was presented every night. And uh, you'd wake up in the next town and go back to it. But yeah, it is absolutely like, uh, it, it never, it never caught up with you. That's why it caught up with me so hard. I think when uh, COVID happened, mm. cause I was still, you know, just on the same exact pattern. Like I, I had my, I had my, you know, my routine down to a, down to an absolute science of like how much I could drink before sound check how long after soundcheck I I had to wait until like, you know, the doors open and my friends showed up, how I would drink once my friends were there and like what to drink on stage. And then after I was off stage, it was just a race to see how fucked up I could get from the time that all those people went home (laughs) to their beds or poured into their Ubers. And before I had to get on the bus that, you know, would usually pull out and start driving at three or four in the morning to the next city. Um, but it was an absolute science and it because of because of all that and because like i never really got drunk you know super drunk around those friends um and i never really got fucked up on stage it was only afterwards when you know the lights were off and you know the fans went home and the friends went home and everything that uh i never really had to face the music with it man yeah i i i just like I'm trying to imagine it, and, and man, it's just like almost—it's too crazy to to imagine, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or like if I did feel myself kind of creeping down that way, where I'm like, oh, I'm starting to crack, or like there's too many people in this room and I'm freaking out, and like I, I just had to do like five shots in a row with my friends. Uh-huh. I just step into a bathroom and do a bump of coke and be back out and be like, all right, let's go. Yeah. Oh, um, man. But yeah. what my like what my body was paying for during all that stuff, man, was just like I was aging. I was aging like an old dog, you know. I was hurting uh, out there so bad. Yeah, I, I would always try to. I would always try to. Okay, I'm gonna have one drink now, and, and then. But if I yeah. and then like an hour later, whatever. But it, I would never get to that. Just a second drink, I would be off. You know what I mean? I had no yeah, control. I, so I couldn't do what you did. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, what I did was bullshit, too. Because, like, I would have that one beer. And I have a cup holder on my wheelchair. And that one beer would just, like, sit in there for a couple hours and get warm. But I'd sit there and do shots. And I'd, like, do uh, pulls off bottles and, you know, drink whiskey. And it's, like, I'm still still on my first beer. First beer. <laughs> I still got it here. <laughs> yeah. You posted yeah. a picture on your Instagram where there's uh, there are two people, one face down on the floor and the other on the bench <laughs> in a tour bus. And, uh-huh. you know, the floor is just fucking bombed out with popcorn and shit. <laughs> you know, there's a t- can of Takati in, in, in uh in the picture and your wheelchair is in the background. 
which is a great picture of real life on the road. But but what got me were the comments, you know, people like yeah. f- fed into what the like the air quote rock star lifestyle is supposed to be because um, we're all fed that living this way was is so so glamorous but can you give us the real story behind that picture yeah i mean that's uh th- we were going down the road at the time that's pr- that's a picture in motion probably at like five o'clock in the morning and that's uh that's me and john john's face down i'm on the bench my chair is you know tumbled in the back somewhere crumpled up in a corner and it, to to I mean, to illustrate that, it'd be, I wish I had like a story of like, oh, that was the wildest night in Columbus or, you know, Schenectady or Uh wherever the fuck. I have no idea, dude. That was just (laughs) another, that was just another night on tour. That was like another unspectacular, like end of the night. Oh Lord, we got to do this whole thing again kind of thing. Uh And uh, the bus would look like that every single night. It would be that trashed and that disgusting and that covered with food and our driver uh, would just hate us. You know, I don't I don't even know the name of the driver on that run because it all kind of runs together. Um, But, you know, I'm sure he pulled into his city about four hours from when that photo was taken, opened up the little velvet curtain between his driving area and where we are and probably just like muttered these fucking animals. (laughs) You know, these yeah. fucking assholes and got out the vacuum cleaner and the dust buster and started cleaning up our shit. And probably one or two of us like woke up and sort of tried to help him. But, you know, it's just that every night. So I I don't even know the story behind it. I know the photo you're talking about. Um, The only reason it stands out is like, you know, that wasn't always cataloged. That wasn't always captured, that end Uh of the night kind of thing. I think that one's just so perfect because, like, you know, John's face down. I'm kind of crumpled up like a discarded tissue. (laughs) And, like, and and just, yeah, I mean, what kind of monster brings a bag of popcorn to a bunch (laughs) of, to a bunch of drunks going down the road? But, uh, but yeah, every, every night kind of looks and feels like that. And it still sort of does. Uh, you know, I can that I'm not hung over in the morning. I don't feel terrible, but I, I will still wake up to that same exact scene um, because of some crew guys or whoever else decided to go for it. Uh, it's a nice precautionary tale. And it, it does, you know, there's this thing in recovery where uh, your counselors or people in inpatient or whatever will talk about triggers and they'll talk about, you know, careful about like what you watch or like going to bars that you used to go to. Cause you don't want to, you don't want to get tempted by this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I gotta tell you, <laughs> I wake up every morning and I see that same picture happening, unfolding in real life. And that's enough to keep the bottle out of my mouth for another day. Uh, it's far from glorifying, you know, like when you're still in it and you still smell it every day, I always used to wonder why there were so many like, you know, program guy, 20 year chip guys that are bartenders in Vegas. You know, you'll you'll see those guys out out in the world or like the catering wedding bartender. That's like, you know, you can just tell it's like he's got the friends with Bill W sticker on Uh on the car Uh and like like, man, what are you doing in this industry? But I guess if you just see people get fall down drunk every night of your life. Maybe that perspective is like in some way beneficial. Maybe not. Maybe not for maybe not for everybody. But like, um, you know, I still I still kind of see it every night. And for the record, like, you know, my guitar tech sober. Two of the other guys in my band are now sober. They got six months. I got a couple of years. Uh, as this band kind of goes down the road, I think like I don't know that I provided an example necessarily, but I think. there's just like a, a point of unsustainability and certainly a point of diminishing returns with this stuff. And I am, I am happy to see that, you know, nobody's getting any younger and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people are, uh, you know, around the family are like, well, I still want to keep doing this job, but I certainly can't keep living like this. And that's, that's where I was. Do you think it, do you think it was like a mind switch 
or a mind change that you're able to, you know, because when I when I first got sober, I I could not go into bars or be anywhere that had served alcohol. But now I I can I play in a cover band, so I can go to yeah. go to the bars and play and not have any you know like you said hashtag or or air quote triggers or anything like that. Yeah, you know or. I think- yeah, I, I got the benefit of being able to tiptoe back into it because all this COVID shit was still going on. So I uh, I didn't have to go straight back into, uh, you know, months on the road. I was like I was flying out and doing festivals here and there. The months on the road thing did ultimately happen. And that was, you know, just this year from February to April of this year, we were back on back in the buses and on the trucks, it was the longest tour we had done in years. And, uh, fittingly enough, two of my guys ended up going to treatment right off that tour. Mm. Um, I think it's just like, and it, again, you know, it's like, it's so much, it's, uh, it's, it's just this weird kind of groundhog day situation where that, that, you know, routine of, waiting to a certain time and then hurry up and get like four drinks and then like, cool it, cool it, cool it. Okay. Do the sound check, be professional, do like a radio station, a meet and greet. All right. You're on stage. You can have like nine drinks. All right. Hold off. You got some friends you got to meet. You got to hang out with. All right. Everyone's going home. Party's on. Break out the bag, break out the bottles, drink like hell, go crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that routine doesn't, it's not sustainable for anybody. And it's something that you can do for, you know, a little while if you're doing like weekend warrior stuff, but this is my job. This Mm -hmm. is every night and Mm -hmm. this is their job. And this is every night. And I think everyone was really stoked to be able to do like a high level major tour out of COVID. Um, But it was sort of the adverse effect of, you know, me going into lockdown with this, uh, kind of rock star journeyman mentality of like how I drink, I think, uh, being off the road for that long and being in quarantine, a lot of my other guys were drinking off the road and they were caught up to like where I might've been when I was on the road in 2017. So then when they did get into the buses and started getting into the routine, it was like, all right, well, I've just been drinking to get through my days anyway. So hell yeah, let's go on the road. Let's go on tour and, uh, works for a couple of days, but then, you know, day 57 where you're in God knows where, and you've just been like, you know, getting hammered every single night and waking up with a crushing hangover every single day. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's brutal. And yeah, two of my guys went straight into treatment off of it. Mm. I'm I'm so proud of both of them. I'm really glad that they did, but that wasn't pressure from me. That wasn't, you know, me proselytizing or telling anyone I was worried about them. I just kind of watched that same scene unfold every night. Wow. In a different view though. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I used to dream about being like a famous musician because it would give me that excuse to be able to live that alcoholic lifestyle because that's what I saw, you know, and I loved that alcohol, Uh, you know, because you're a rock star. That's normal, right? Or whatever. Hell, sex, drugs and rock and roll, man. You You think it is. Yeah, man. I I don't know. Like, I, I have no idea. I have no concept of like, you know, what my life even looked like five years ago, six years ago when I was just like getting blasted and going on stage. But I'll tell you what, I do have video proof and I've got recordings and those nights where I just thought that I was killing it and that I was a rock God. Uh huh. Go to the tape. Let's see. And I'm playing, I played like shit, man. I was playing like absolute dog shit. And, uh, it's back to that whole, uh, the, the Vegas bartender thing of, uh, you know, like I'm going to watch these goddamn maniacs get absolutely kerblobbered every night. And that's going to keep me straight. Like going back and seeing footage of me playing like crap or seeing old interviews of me or, 
you know, pictures where my glasses are broken yeah. and like my, sh- my shirts buttoned up the wrong way. And, like, <laughs> you know, like that stuff, yeah. that stuff does, it does kind of help. It's funny. And, you know, you don't want to glorify it and be like, Oh, what a legend. I, you know, I think of it as a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of memories that I, you know, there's just a lot of scenes deleted and, you know, I, I wish I could go back and get them, but the best I can do is just like, you know, yeah. Stay stay where I'm at and and try and try and take notes and Man, I know. used to I used to record drunk on my little four track cassette four track. <laughs> yeah, dude. The, and then you the go t- into and you're oh I got this this freaking badass riff and I'm I'm gonna do the vocals for it and everything. And then you go back and you listen to it the next day and you're thinking, What the hell what the dude, hell am I, I doing here? <laughs> I, I, I I had that gray Tascam 488 four track and I had razor blade marks on the top from doing lines and the whole thing was kind of sticky from spilling beer oh. and stuff and just like, yeah, the nightmare of of song demos and just bad ideas that I've recorded <laughs> on that thing is a, it's a landmine. That's honestly a, yeah, I should go back and, and listen to the, <laughs> listen to the four track <laughs> sessions. Oh man, I wish I still had my four track in the tapes that I did on there. Release a a drunk album. <laughs> yeah, man. I was just thinking. I was just thinking about getting a four track tattoo. I missed my. Uh, yeah, I I had a I had a, the Tascam and I had the Fostex, and oh, neither yeah. of yeah neither of them had a sober idea on them for sure. It was yeah. just blo- blobbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, we see all of these, all the, all of these famous rock stars that um, that pass because of either alcohol or drug addiction or mental health issues, you know. And we all cry and we always say, "Why, why, why?" You know, yeah. they live in front of the the lenses, and it makes people think that they know those people, but we yeah. never know what's going on inside people's heads or their hearts, you know? So, you know, you are so courageous to be able to talk about this, to, to bring this into conversation. So man, I give you so much props, my friend. So courageous. Thank you. Well, man, I, uh, I, I'm the same way. Like I love rock and roll and I'm so sad about the 27 club and, you know, just like think about like what, you know, what would a, a Hendrix and Joplin album have sounded like, you know, <laughs> or like yeah. what, what would Jim Morrison think of, uh, of joy division in new yeah. order, <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. to think of those dudes still being around would be incredible. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think about that stuff all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's plenty of us out there. The more time I spend in recovery and I kind of talk about it, the more I realize that uh, it's super common in this industry. Yeah, um, there are so many creatives and musicians and like crew guys, man. Like the the number of roadies and guitar techs and front of house guys that are in in treatment. There's there's meetings set up just for crew dudes out there. Um, wow, and they're and they're awesome, and the stories are incredible. You know. Um, yeah, I bet they have so <laughs> such good stories too. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, and you know, it's, it is that relocating every night and like escaping accountability. I I do think it attracts a kind of a specific sort of person that, uh, this sort of lifestyle would appeal to. And it's not, it's not like, it doesn't necessarily need to be like an avoidant kind of personality, but it's definitely someone that doesn't love accountability. And Mm -hmm. I was definitely someone that did not love accountability. And, uh, it's, it's really fun to be able to still be able to do what I love and to, you know, I'm still an idiot. I still, you know, get, get into dumb situations all the time and I still travel all over the place and I still have, you know, the best time that I could possibly imagine, but I get to remember it now Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's better. Yeah, I went to see the Chili Peppers, and Chili Peppers to me are like, you know, uh, my favorite. I have their t- tattoo on the back of my neck. 
Yeah. But uh, I saw him this time. I saw him before in Portland. I I actually went down to Portland to play music in like 2001, 2002-ish, I guess. That was a beautiful, beautiful time to do it. Yeah. And um, I saw them when I was down there. Uh, I don't, I don't remember hardly any of it, you know, cause I was fucking <laughs> yeah. drunk. And then I saw yeah. him in Vegas, uh, this past, uh, September and I was just like blown away. Like I could remember everything and it was just badass. and it's just different when you're sober, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I think are, are some of those dudes Sober? Yeah, do they talk about it? Like, yeah, pretty- uh, Flea and Anthony Kiedis—they both have books out. Man, I'd love to have them yeah. on my show. Yeah, <laughs> but well, it's like yeah, it's a pretty pretty tight little fraternity of like people that are really talking about it. Uh-huh. I, for for every uh, for every sober musician I know that talks about it, I know like two other sober musicians that don't talk about it. Yeah, and I do think that part of that is because of this like bullshit idea of sex drugs and rock and roll it's like you can still have the party but it's like oh they don't they don't want to give away their secrets that they're not actually out there partying hard which is horse shit man i party harder than anybody (laughs) and like it's because of the fact that i'm straight and i can go to go to bed and wake up and not feel like i'm dying and i can get the party going even earlier the next day you know Mm -hmm. um so i don't really understand the stigma of like oh i don't want I don't want my fans to know I'm sober, man. That would that'd be a buzzkill or a letdown. Yeah. Like I don't I don't preach it. I just show it. I just show up and I party and I have a good time and I rip it up and see my friends and you know, uh-huh. do it all do it do it all again the next day and it's awesome. What was that what was the place that you guys were recording at in in um Portland? The were you doing the live thing or what? Oh, that was the uh, that was the crystal ballroom. Crystal ballroom, yeah, with man. the freaking floors that you can jump up and down. They're yeah, on ba- they're on uh, bearings or whatever. Yeah, yeah, no, the whole thing, the whole thing's kind of a nebulous, mushy yeah. box of box of you know, it's like a bounce castle. It's a bouncy yeah. house. Yeah, um, but um, but imagine like having access like they they just gave us the keys basically for a week and they were like have fun and and then on and then on day two i got too fucked up to enjoy it man like how fun is that (laughs) that's ridiculous so yeah it's 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 things like that it's like man that what an opportunity that i just like literally drank away yeah, I saw mushroom head in the in the crystal ballroom. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love that place. Uh, I think they were opening for Lamb of God or something like that. <laughs> wow. Heavy, yeah. heavy vibes in the crystal. Yeah. I was down there when thirty six were starting to get big. Uh yeah, man. I saw them at Dude. Ash Street Saloon and then uh they invited everybody. To back to their place, so my the singer and I, uh, Chris Karcher, the singer that in the band, we we were called Colder with the K. Yeah, <laughs> there was a band called Cold already, you know, with the C, and of course he had Corn, and we're thinking, hmm, one word name, why not exactly. Colder? <laughs> Perfect. But, but Chris Karcher and I went, and we went to the thirty six house. And we we scrounged up enough money for a case of Natty Ice. And we went in there, and it was fun and everything. And then I woke up next to Eric Noonan's bed downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy stuff. (laughs) Absolutely wild. That is so wild. (laughs) I was was at that Primus show at the Egan Center in, in 96, where thirty six crazy fists opened up. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was wasn't it? Uh, I feel like the next day, didn't the bass player go out and get himself into a get himself into a wreck? Or felt like I don't felt remember. Like huh. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was J D. Stewart. He died like really oh. shortly after that. I feel like a month after that show, and it was that felt like they were, you know. They were they were the band that was going to break out of Alaska and like bring fame and glory to the region. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it was tragic, man. Jeez. What is fug, fuga, fug, Is it what is it? Fugazing? Fugazing? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a that was just like a, a fun little. Uh, a fun little full circle project. So uh, that's my buddy Kirk Huffman. And it's basically a one man band. Um, he's just a super talented multi-instrumentalist. And he uh, he was one of the kind of the co-band leaders of a band called KK and his Weathered Underground that I played with back in the day and played with uh, Kyle O'Quinn, who's in our band now. He's He's in Portugal, and he was one of the the K's in KK. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, really talented songwriter, and he's been doing this kind of like tripped out dub trip hop stuff for a couple of years, and uh, it's it's super cool stuff. But with with this uh, Fugazing record, I think he just wanted to make something like heavy and fuzzy and spaced out and rock, and um, so he did it at Bob Lang, which is just like where it's like where you go to if you want to make a big loud seattle record uh-huh. um just like great grunge studio with the killer board and incredible vibes and yeah he made a he made a super fuzzy batch of tracks and i ripped some solos on it and super fun cool man yeah, yeah i listened to the two the two tracks before i got on here <laughs> i was like yeah, what it's, is this <laughs> it's, it's it's fun man like it's it's totally that uh like that my bloody valentine by way of like 90s super drag by way of you know fugazi uh, it's kind of kind of a trip cool cool haven't haven't heard anything like that in about 25 years yeah so, yeah. yeah bring it back <laughs> hell yeah brother okay let's go back to don from yeah. the funky eskimos <laughs> uh, let me talk about don reardon for another hour i love that man <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> I was just uh the wife and I were just texting with him. Uh it's just like he, you know, he's a major proprietor of use the ulu for everything. Uh-huh, like you uh-huh. use it to chop a salad, use it, you know, it, just use it in all applications. So it's always like hey Don, like I'm I'm about to make a Caesar. What do I how do I use the ulu? He's like <laughs> just use it. Use it for everything. Like no wrong answers. Just like rule number 1, don't cut off your fingers. Rule number 2, use it all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're just we're just going back and forth. But yeah, dude, like he uh he's just one of those guys that uh I can bring up like the most random connection and you know, he's got a story about yeah. it. Like even 2019 AFN, you know, we were up in Fairbanks and um, I have a cousin through marriage named Eric Dragus who played for the Nanooks. He was a hockey player in Fairbanks uh-huh. in the 90s. And I saw that his number was retired in the Carlson Center. So I had one of my friends uh, take a photo of me in front of his retired number and Don was like, oh, you know, Eric, you know, Eric Dragas? And I'm like, yeah, he's my cousin. <laughs> and he's like, well, I I was his RA oh. at UAF. <laughs> like, I've known him longer than you have. I'm like, you get out of here, man. Like, he's just, he's like the Forrest Gump of, uh, of Alaskan <laughs> figures, where it's just like, he, he's been everywhere, you know, every, every time all at once. Just yeah. Ev- everyone's got so many dawn stories and he's, yeah he's such a good he's a friend one, he's a wonderful dude yeah he's seen me in in some bad situations so and his 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 just amazing you know friendship it's just love man it's just love yeah yeah that's 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 how you sum him up that's a perfect word for him i'm so happy to see that annette's doing well and you know and just yeah they're beautiful man yeah yeah well Eric, it's so awesome that you are using your platform to bring this conversation out. I I really applaud you. It's so courageous. And I really, really, really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and sharing today. So, Koyana. Koyana, man. Make me me sound cool. Edit it up. Dude, I, and honestly, thank you for, uh, thank you for a new friendship. Like, uh, let's stay in touch. Will do. Oh, hey. Th- can- this was really fun. Definitely, definitely. Where can people find you, like, on social media and stuff before we before we go? 
I I mean, I'm I'm always lurking around the Portugal the man socials, so Instagram, okay. Twitter, Facebook or uh yeah, I got personals out there too. It's Eric with a C, Hawk with an O. I'm I'm easy to find if uh if if you want to talk to me or if you heard anything and uh you know, you're like, "Ah, this guy's telling my story." Reach out to me. I uh, I check every email. I answer everything. So, hit me up. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. If you're a person who would like to share your story about mental health, sobriety, or recovery, or know a person who would like to share their own story, please visit my website at anonymouseskimo.com and drop me a line or leave me a voicemail so we could maybe bring hope to someone still struggling. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please visit my website at anonymouseskimo.com and click on the donate button. You can also support the podcast by clicking on the store button where you can get Anonymous Eskimo merch. And while you're visiting my website, please take some time to rate this podcast and write a review. Listen next week when I have another strong, courageous person who's walking with us on this healing journey. Biura! Sober as you. Sober. Sober as you.